All right, today we're going to wrap up John 14. Uh, we're at the very last section there, verse 25 through 31. Um, hear the word of our God. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Father, indeed the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Thank you for this enduring and reliable word. As we examine it this morning, let us not forget that by it you examine us as well. Grant the Spirit to illuminate the Word that we might understand it. And in understanding, we would also believe it. And in believing, we would live in accordance with it, knowing your will and purposes that are found for us there. But also to know of the great work of Jesus for us found there. And we ask this in the name of the living Word who took on flesh, Jesus our Savior. Amen. Um, when I was about 10, our neighbors, Mr. Bailey, died of cancer. And I was a few years older than their two children. And uh, so, you know, there was a time when I would kind of look out for them a little bit. I would play with them. We, I remember a lot of battles in the snow when I was a kid. Um, but it's not until you get older that you start to think about what happens when, what it would be like to be a father who is responsible for people and knowing that you will not be able to fulfill that responsibility as you intended. Sometimes, like Mr. Bailey, you have time to think about that. Uh, those of you who may remember, uh, girlfriend number two, um, after we broke up, her father was killed in a car accident. He fell asleep at the wheel because he worked too much. He didn't have time to think so much about what he would do or say or want his children to know. I want that in your minds as we look at this text because that's what's going on. Jesus is seeking to prepare his people for life without him. As we see at the very end of this text, the enemy is coming, his death is approaching, it is closer than they ever want to imagine. 
how are they going to not just survive, but to thrive without him? That's what's going on here. So let's look at it from that perspective. Their big idea is that Jesus gained and gives what the church needs to grow. Yes, I have a lot of alliteration this morning. He gained and gives what the church needs to grow. Let's start with the Spirit, who is Jesus' advocate to teach God's people. Jesus, we've talked about this last week, He's functioning in a sense as the, the paterfamilias, the head of the household. He's called them my children, even though, my little children, even though they are His disciples. He's the head of the church, which is the household of God. And what He's doing here is He's bequeathing things to them. He's acting as the head of a household who's preparing to die. He's doing that which is right and fitting for a father to do. It is fitting for a father to look ahead and make sure that his wife and his children are cared for should something happen to him. Jesus is their father in a sense, but their brother and their friend. I was reminded a little bit of this, sort of a picture of this this week uh, for those of you who follow baseball. You'll know this. For those of you who don't, don't worry. It's not about baseball. It involves baseball. But the manager of the Red Sox was diagnosed with cancer recently. And so he was going to go for his very first uh, cancer treatment, his first chemotherapy treatment. His friend, Terry Francona, who used to be the manager of the Red Sox, and he had known each, they played together in the Indians organization and and John Farrell worked for Terry Francona when he was the manager of the Red Sox, and though the Indians happened to be in town. So Terry showed up for his first chemo appointment. And he said simply, all I, knew, all I know what to do is to be a friend. And so he did exactly what a friend does. In even greater fashion, Jesus knows what it is to be the head of a household and does what a head of a household does. And so the first part of that is the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. We've talked a little bit about this already. This is the second time that this has sort of come up. And Jesus talked about it in the context of if you ask and I will send the, you know, I'll, I'll make petition to the Father to send the, the advocate, the other advocate to you. And J Jesus, as we think about the Holy Spirit and how He expresses this, that the Father is going to send the Spirit in my name. He's functioning, in a sense, as an ambassador of Jesus. Jesus, our great high priest, makes, makes the request to the Father that the Father sends Him. But the Father sends Him, particularly as an ambassador of Jesus. Now, this passage... And I'm not going to get too much into this. It, this interests a few of you, I know. This passage has been used in, to kind of get into that difference of opinion that exists between the Eastern and the Western church as to from whom does the Spirit proceed. When we confess the Nicene Creed, we, we, conf we confess 
I think most of us do anyway, that the, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. If you're part of the Eastern Church, they only, they only confess that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Okay. This was part of why the Eastern and Western Church broke up in 1054. And some might say, see, look here, the Father sends the Spirit. The, East, the Western Church has followed, uh, I think, the development of Augustine. And Augustine de- developed that understanding of the Trinity, of the Father and Son, and because it's a community of love, understanding the Spirit as sort of the bond of love between the Father and the Son. And so he proceeds from both the Father and Son unto one another and is sent by both the Father and Son unto the people. Now, how's that for a little bit of heady theology this morning? Okay. Just know, I guess, that this is a little controversial. And I think R.C.'s right in when he says that because, because the Spirit is functioning as an advocate for or ambassador of Jesus Christ, that the, the Son also sends the Spirit. And he proceeds from the Son, not just the Father. Now, the reason why the Father sends the Spirit, the advocate, is to teach you all things and to bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Now, I don't want you to quote this if you're about to have a test in quantum physics. That's not the intention, okay? Uh, the idea is not that we directly receive revelation from God about science, or math, or history, or English, for those who don't like doing grammar. Okay, there's no matrix-like download. That's not what this is talking about. The Spirit doesn't uh, teach us all things in the sense of any possible thing, but really the context is here, here is on all that Jesus has said. And so, as we saw last week, that encompasses not just His earthly ministry amongst the disciples, but it includes the Old Testament. Okay, if you weren't here, go online if it's online and, and listen to that, and we'll, you'll see sort of why I think that uh, Jesus spoke all those things that we read in the Old Testament through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, they need to know the truth, and Jesus is saying that it is important for you to know the truth, and so that so you will know the truth. I'm not just giving you the Old Testament. I'm not just giving you the memory of what I have said to you, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so that you will remember the truth and understand the truth. He will teach you. And so the first part of that really is remembrance, bringing to mind. And we see that the Gospels are largely the product of the Holy Spirit reminding them of that which Jesus said while He was among them, as well as reminding them of that which Jesus did while He was among them. That's important because, well, our memories are not always accurate. Our memories are frail. Our memories are sometimes clouded by events that may happen. 
That's why a lot of lawyers say that a witness is the most unreliable portion of testimony because many people can see the same event and see different parts of it or misconstrue things. Sproul notes that even the best students were not capable of memorizing everything Jesus said during his lifetime. Humanly speaking, we forget things. Important facts and such slip from our minds. How many men have forgotten their anniversary or their wife's birthday? Okay. Fortunately, some of you haven't. Okay. He continues, these accounts or the Gospels do not rest simply on the natural ability of the disciples to recall perfectly what Jesus taught them. And so the point is, the Spirit brought these things back to their mind specifically so they could be written down in the Gospel accounts. Not only that, but he says, teaching you. We think of the the epistles which are about what Jesus and his works mean and applying them. And so it's a proper interpretation of the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection in terms of what theological importance there is there instead of just Jesus died on a cross. What does that mean? So talking about you know him as a ransom, him as a substitute, him as an atonement for our sins, him raising, rising again for our justification, all of that stuff, that theological stuff, is what the Spirit taught his disciples who then became known as apostles. And we have it in the Scriptures, in the epistles, of the New Testament. And so, as we think about our faith, we have to remember joyfully, very joyfully, that we're not at the mercy of the apostles' memory and we're not at the mercy of their intellectual capacity. We don't go, you know, Paul was a lot smarter than Peter. So, obviously, Paul's letters are better, they're more truthful, and so forth. No. (laughs) The Spirit worked in Paul using his gifts and abilities, yes, but he also worked in Peter using his gifts and abilities, sometimes above his gifts and abilities, and John, and Jude, and James, and Luke, and Matthew, and Mark. It's It's... The Spirit, Jesus speaking to His people in His heavenly ministry through the power of the Spirit, and that's why we have what we call the New Testament. I've thought a little bit about what I will do in case something happens to me. Not just about, um, you know, life insurance. That's already taken care of. Okay, that's my. This is now my annual reminder to the men. If you haven't done that, love your wife and kids and do it. Okay? But there's more to making sure that my children are financially taken care of and my wife is financially taken care of. And I'm now serving notice to Matt Fitzsimmons that if anything happens to me, Matt, I want all my sermons put on a server for my kids so that they can hear, not just my voice, but what I believed and what I want them to believe. 
so that long after I'm gone, I'm still able to nurture my children by the teaching of the Word of God. And, and Amy, you need to make sure that everything by Sinclair Ferguson remains in the family and is given to my children. <laughs> if, it's, if it has his name or R.C.'s name and a couple other names I'll give you later, that stays because those are the books I want my children to grow up reading, to feed their souls. And Christ, because He loves His people, has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can have the New Testament to feed our souls. Because He loves us. That's not it, though. That's not all, rather. There's also the illumination where the Spirit helps us, you and me, His people, to understand what the Scriptures mean. In other words, you and I, when we study the Scriptures, are not at the mercy of our own intellect. And you, people of God, are not at the mercy of my intellect. And that ought to comfort you. A lot. Okay? I am not a genius. Nor do I claim to be. I am not Steve Cavallero. Super genius. But the Spirit comes to help us understand the Scriptures. And not only that, but He comes to remind us of the Scriptures when we teach, when we evangelize, when we provide counsel to people. He, it's like in the deep recesses of your brain because you read it once, but He brings it to the forefront of your brain so you can offer it to somebody else. That's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. That takes place, not just in preaching, but he does that in your life as you speak to other people because Christ loves his church. And so Jesus ensures, I don't like my transition here, but the inscripturization, how's that for a word, of his teaching and work through the Spirit. Probably a better way of saying it, he ensures the giving of the Scriptures, and the understanding of the Scriptures through His Spirit. Hey, that's so much better. So much better. Secondly, Jesus gives us the peace that He won to calm our hearts. Jesus is not done bequeathing spiritual wealth to His disciples and therefore unto us, but He's continuing to sustain them, and there's something else they need in order to grow. And He says, peace. I leave you. That's an awkward sort of construction of a sentence. Uh, it follows the Greek as opposed to what we normally would say in English because peace is thrown at the beginning of the sentence even though it's the direct object in order to emphasize, I'm giving you peace. Peace. They need this because they are about to enter, well, they already are in, a very tumultuous world. But the one they have looked to and trusted for these three years is now going to be gone, and because they bear His name, they're going to be hated in the world. They need a profound peace. God is often declared to be the God of peace. Romans 15.33 
1 Thessalonians 5.23, the benediction that we see at the end of Hebrews 13. These are some of the places where God is declared to be the God of peace. And that part of what that means is, when we get back and think of the Trinity, He's at peace with Himself. He is the only community that thus far has ever existed that has only known peace. Think about that. The only family that has ever known just peace. There's been no conflict between Father, Son, and Spirit whatsoever. No envying, no biting and devouring, no lying or deceit, no destruction and selfishness. Peace. Because He's also the God of love. And love does no harm to its neighbor. And so, being full of love for one another, they only do what's good for one another. So that's part of what it means that God is the God of peace. But how can we have peace when we are sinners who happen to be surrounded by sinners? Last night was not an easy night in the Cavalero household. Okay, I'm not going to go into details about any of this, but I think some of the frustrations of earlier in the day may have built up. And so, you know, right around 7 o'clock-ish, there became tumult in the Cavalero household. There was crying. There was yelling. I will take blame for the yelling part. Okay, I don't cry very much. So if they hear about crying, it's usually not me. Okay, but the yelling, it's probably me. There's just a lot of turmoil going on in our house. And it was very hard to get the kids, you know, eventually to bed. And then we discovered that the tumult didn't end with that. It continued further on into the night. It was not an easy night. And that's just a reflection of life. Because... We're sinners, and so we don't respond well to adversity and trial. And the people around us create some adversity and trial for us, and sometimes we create it for them. Okay? So every household is marked by tension at some point, conflict at others, despair perhaps for periods of time. We need peace. Christ is revealed in Isaiah 9 as the Prince of Peace. And He comes, as it says in Ephesians 2, to be our peace. He is our peace, meaning that He restores peace by bearing the curse. And so, He comes to resolve all the conflict that exists first off with us and God, but also horizontally, us and one another, through forgiveness, through pardon, through teaching us how to love. 
Paul talks a little bit about this in Romans 5, the first verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we do not have the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not have peace with God. But if we have peace, we know that the hardship, the afflictions that we experience don't mean that God is against us. In Sunday school, here's my plug, we're studying Ruth. And this morning, what did she say? The hand of the Lord is against me. She saw her circumstances, the bitter providence that she was experiencing, and did not see it as God trying to rescue her from herself, but as God trying to destroy her. And that's what we do when we forget about the peace we have with God through Jesus Christ. We view our circumstances as God trying to crush us and destroy us instead of deliver us from ourselves and our sin. But it's not just that. The accuser, other people that we know, And in fact, our own consciences will accuse us in the midst of hardship. Amy had a lack of sleep last night. And so she had a rough morning, and I had a rough morning. And part of how the reason why I had a rough morning was my own conscience, because I'm the reason why she didn't sleep well. And it wasn't just my snoring, okay? Now, that factored in later, but there was a problem I wanted her opinion on, and I regretted waking her up from her peaceful sleep, okay? But the stressful night turned into a a lack of sleep night. And so it was good that I'm talking about peace because I need to apply that. Jesus said to them, you know, let not your heart be troubled or be afraid. Okay? Part of what that means is you have a responsibility to seek that peace in the ways in which I have told you to seek that peace. If the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, is going to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, then we need to make use of what Paul says in Philippians 4. With thanksgiving, make your petitions known to Him. We forfeit the peace when we fail to pray about these things. And so... What I probably should have done last night as water was dripping from the ceiling in in increasing measure was not wake up my wife, but pray to my God. Sorry, honey. We have a responsibility to do this. He'll provide it freely. We don't earn it. But there's a means that he appoints that we might receive it. And so we need to receive it. Jesus uh, continues here but he's by saying, Not as the world gives, I give to you. 
the world gives us a false peace and a fragile peace. Think for a moment of the Treaty of Versailles. For those of you who don't know what the Treaty of Versailles is, it was the treaty that ended, and I use that term loosely, World War I. It was a temporary peace. I mean, it stopped the bloodshed of World War I, but it only picked up in World War II. It helped create what happened in World War II, if you look at history. Much of what Hitler did was rail against the Treaty of Versailles because of the harshness it had placed upon the German people, and he used that to foment their rebellion against the rest of Europe. It was a fragile and false peace because the real root of the animosity was not dealt with. We saw that in the reading from Jeremiah 9. The false prophets, peace, peace. There was no peace because the people of God hadn't forsaken their sin. There was no repentance, and so there was not going to be any peace. The the curses of the covenant were going to fall down upon their heads because they hadn't repented yet. And so it's false peace when it's not tied to godliness. It's a fragile peace because oftentimes the the peace between us is broken by continued sin. You did that again, huh? There's the peace. It's it's gone. (laughs) That's not the kind of peace Jesus gives. He gives a lasting peace. A solid, firm, dependable kind of peace. He protects our hearts and minds. He protects them from the fear and anxiety which can run roughshod over us by giving us faith and peace. And if we think about it, we recognize that Jesus brings about the fulfillment of the priestly blessing of number six in his work in us and for us. Let the Lord bless you and keep you. Let the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The disciples should have gone right back to that priestly blessing when Jesus says, Peace I give you. He's fulfilling that blessing because of his work for us on the cross. It brings the peace that we so desperately need because we continue to sin against God and one another. But it's not just Jesus. Let's think about, for a second, the Spirit that he sends. Not only does he reveal the truth, but we see that he produces the fruit of the Spirit within us, godliness. And what's one of the fruit of the Spirit? Peace. And so one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to produce peace in your life and mine, and that usually means that we go through unfun stuff. Okay? 
just like you don't develop muscles by sitting at home and thinking about working out. You develop them by working out. The only muscle that gets bigger by sitting home and alone or whatever, sitting home and doing nothing is this one. <laughs> okay? So, the Spirit brings us through trying things so that we learn increasingly to rely upon Christ to be peaceful, as we see in Galatians. And so Jesus provides peace for us to guard us in a troubled and troubling world. Thirdly, Jesus proved his love for the Father to the world. This is almost a sermon in itself, but we'll handle it quickly. While Jesus is leaving them, he reminds them where he is going, and where he is going is to the Father, and he says, if you loved me, you would rejoice, instead of being mournful. Then, okay, this, these things are not mutually exclusive. They can grieve his departure, even as they rejoice in where he's going. Uh, we think of this with our brother George. I rejoice in George's homecoming, or homegoing. I miss him. For those of you who know John Adams, we're, we're, you know, you're sad that he's about to die, but you rejoice because you believe he's going to be with the Father because of the work of Christ. And so we have both of these things simultaneously, but for different reasons. It's not either or. Okay? And so they're only stuck in the grieving for themselves. They're not rejoicing that Jesus is going to the Father. And so while they love him, their love is not complete, just as our love is not complete. And then Jesus makes another statement that some have twisted into very bad things. The Father is greater than I. Some use this to, to deny the divinity of Jesus, which if you read John's Gospel, there's no way you should be able to walk away without thinking He is fully God. The Father and I are one. There's so many declarations of His divinity in this Gospel, it's nearly criminal to isolate one verse, one phrase in one verse and say, obviously Jesus is not divine. Sadly, that is what some people do. What does this mean? I believe this means that as the mediator, which we've talked about before, okay, as the God-man, Jesus is under the authority of the Father. Okay? Think about it this way. The president is greater than me. Right? He has more authority than me. He has more power than me. I can't, I can't tell you know, the Pacific Fleet to go anywhere. <laughs> I can try, but it's not going to go anywhere. Okay? The president has more power than me. Is he, is he greater than me ontologically? No, he's just a man like I'm just a man. We're both made in the image of God. Neither one of us is greater than the other when we think about nature. Okay? but he has more authority than me. And so when Jesus is saying this, the Father and the Son are equal. 
Okay? But as our mediator, as the God-man, Jesus submits to the Father and obeys the Father. That's what this is getting at. Okay? For our salvation is why He's doing this. Okay? Jesus is telling them this, He says, so that they will believe when it happens. He's trying to build their future faith. He's acting as the prophet like unto Moses from Deuteronomy that was promised. Jesus also declares that the ruler of this world is coming. And what he means, of course, is that he is coming for Jesus at an appointed time and an appointed place. The betrayal of Jesus is on the horizon. But Jesus makes the claim that the accuser has no claim on me because Jesus is sinless. There is no claim. There is no demand upon him. Now, you and I are a different story, in a sense. But here's the good news. If you're in Christ, he has no claim on you anymore. Because Christ has paid the claim for you. He has borne the curse for his people. He can silence the mouth of the accuser. And in fact, we see, as we looked at last week, we have an advocate before the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. He's silencing the voice of the accuser against us. Continues. I do as the Father commanded me in order that the world may know that I love the Father. Two quick things I want us to see here. First is that the Father, not Satan, is in control of what's going to happen. The betrayal of Jesus is in the Father's hands, not simply Satan's hands. Okay? But the Son, secondly, loves the Father and keeps His Word. What should that remind you of? What Jesus said about His disciples in last week's text and I think the week before that. If you love Me, you will obey Me. Which again is merely a reiteration of what we find in the, in the commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. He's walking the path as our Redeemer. He's loving God and obeying God perfectly for us. So that we can receive His perfect obedience by faith in Him. His righteousness will be given to us. That's the hope of the Gospel. Not that you'll be perfectly able to keep the law next week, but that Jesus has kept the law for you. And so Jesus ends with, rise, let us go from here. I think the rest of uh, 15, 16, and 17 uh, take place on the road from the upper room 
to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they arrive at the, at the very verse, first verse of, of uh, John 18. So Jesus is going to do what a rabbi does. His disciples are going to do what the disciples do, and that's follow after him and listen to him while he speaks to them. Okay? This is, not, this is a change of scenery. Okay? But they're leaving to meet the enemy. Jesus is not leaving to run away from the enemy. He's running to meet him. And, you know, I talk to you sometimes about my favorite movies. Well, one of my favorite movies, my favorite Western of all time is Tombstone. Okay? Because, partially because of the relationship between Wyatt and Doc in that movie. The, you know, the friendship that they have. And what, one of the things I love about that movie is, Doc, you think he's near dead, okay, from tuberculosis. And Wyatt, who's not nearly the gunman that Doc is, has to go meet Johnny Ringo. And that probably means that Johnny Ringo is going to kill Wyatt Earp. But he's going. But then something amazing happens that you don't realize until, you know, the person who shows up first to meet Johnny Ringo is Doc. Okay? Each of us, in a sense, we, we had an appointment with death, which would bring the curse upon us. But the amazing thing is, is that Jesus got there ahead of us. And he conquered death so that it does not destroy us. Jesus did not run away from the enemy, but he engaged him to destroy his work so that it does not destroy us. To which we ought to go, thank you, Jesus. When you love someone, you want to make sure they're taken care of when you are gone. We take out life insurance, we make wills, we bequeath items of value we want people to have. Jesus loves his disciples. And he loves the church. And because of that, he gives the church the Spirit in order to give us the New Testament so that we have his teaching, we have its meaning, we have its application. We have the truth that we need to grow because Jesus gave and gives the Spirit to the church. We also have peace that we need in this troubled world. We have peace with God and peace with one another through Jesus' death upon the cross. And it's this peace that guards us as we arise to meet the foe in the midst of daily life. So let's receive that peace just as we have received the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here because we have a great Savior who has done great things for us and gives us great things. Not necessarily the great things we want, but the great things that we need. So we humble ourselves before your wisdom, your sovereignty, your goodness, your faithfulness. And we ask that we would drink in deeper measure of the Spirit that we already have because we are in Christ, 
that we would drink in greater measure of Your peace that we already have because of Christ. That we would be known as people who have the Spirit, who walk in peace, who are not thrown asunder by the the troubles of this world, but stand on solid rock and are bold. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.